0: Stripping Down Science The Naked Scientists
1: Hello, it's Sunday the 9th of October. Welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Dr Chris Smith, and also this week, Dr Kat Arnie. Hello, Kat. Hello. Now this week, we're investigating the fuels of the future. We'll be boarding a biofuel-powered bus alongside the scientists who are using algae to make biodiesel.
2: And we'll also find out how to turn household rubbish into hydrogen and meet the people building Britain's first hydrogen fuel cell-powered passenger ferry.
1: Plus, in this week's news, where did the Earth get its water from? Scientists think that they found the source in outer space, and we'll hear where, just very shortly. Meanwhile, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can also write on our Facebook page, that's at facebook.com slash the Naked Scientists, or you can drop us an email to Chris at thenaked scientists.com. <laughs>
0: The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.co.uk.
1: This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney, and I am optimistic as ever about this week's science news. Kat.
2: Yes, this weekend may have brought disappointing news for English rugby fans, although well done to the Welsh, but there's always next time. Or maybe we'll win the football, or maybe the tennis. Now, for non-sports fans, this kind of optimism in the face of persistent failure just seems crazy. But have you ever wondered why some people continue to look on the bright side of life, whether it's about sport or more serious life events, when it seems to an outsider that the odds are just stacked against them? Now, to see if they can explain what's going on here, Dr Tally Sharrett and her team at the Wellcome Trust Centre for Neuroimaging at University College London have done an interesting experiment with brain scanning, which they've published this week in Nature Neuroscience. So what did they do? Well, they persuaded 19 volunteers to lie in a machine known as as an fMRI scanner, and that's short for Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging, which measures activity levels in different bits of the brain. And they asked each participant to, to estimate their chances of of around 80 different unfortunate life events befalling them, such as having their car stolen or developing a serious disease like Alzheimer's. And after each guess, the scientist told the person the actual average probability of that event happening. Now, once each volunteer had been through the scanner, the researchers asked them to go and fill in a questionnaire designed to test their levels of optimism and then have another go at estimating their chances of each event happening to them. And that's when they noticed something interesting. And what was that? Well, it seems that researchers did change their estimates of the chances of something bad happening, but only if they turned out that they previously thought their chances were actually worse, were higher. So, for example, if they thought they had a 40% chance of something particular bad happening, like you know developing an illness, and they were told the risk was only 20%, then they would adjust their estimate downwards. But if they thought they already had a low chance of something happening and were told that the average risk was much higher, they just tended to ignore this and make only a small adjustment to their estimate.
1: Wow, so why is this happening? Why is it that people are changing their estimates like this in the face of more positive information, they sort of change things, but they put the blinkers on when it's less optimal for them to do so?
2: Well, the clue to what's going on here came from the brain scans. Now, the scientists found increased activity in three regions of the brain, the frontal lobes, and these are regions that are known to be involved in error processing. Now, there was increased activity in these areas uh, of the brain if the chances of a bad thing happening turned out to be lower than expected, suggesting that the person was in some way recalibrating their beliefs about it. But if the chances of something bad happening was actually higher than the person thought, the scientist noticed much less brain activity. And the more optimistic a person was, according to the questionnaire they filled in, the less brain activity the scientist saw, suggesting that the person was just ignoring the information and not processing it.
1: And so what does this tell us about the average person in the street's way of viewing the world then?
2: Well, there's a few caveats here, because this study only involved 19 people. That's pretty small. And um, these kind of fMRI studies can be notoriously difficult to interpret. But it certainly helps to shed some light on how your character, whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, influences how you make decisions. Now, on a simple level, this could explain why England fans cling to our belief that we really could win something, you know, this time, whether it's rugby, football, tennis, or anything like that. But on a more serious note looking on the bright side of life can be very important as a way of dealing with really serious life events like a major illness, uh, divorce, being a victim of crime. But in other ways, it can be quite damaging because mistakenly believing that your chances of a specific event happening to you are much lower than they actually are can influence your behaviour. For example, if you think you have a very low chance of developing cancer, you might not quit smoking or for example not practicing safe sex or even not saving for your retirement and interestingly the researchers suggest that because financial experts are known to underestimate risks and be over optimistic about potential profits this may be some kind of uh, the subconscious reluctance of the financial world to accept the real risks of their investments may have unwittingly led to the current financial crisis who knows
1: Hmm, sobering stuff. Thank you, Kat. Well, out into space now, and the question of where Earth got its water. Scientists suspect that comets may be responsible for turning a very dry, barren rock, which is what the Earth was when it first started out, into the damp oasis that we have today. About three quarters of the Earth's surface is covered in water, and we think there's about probably two billion cubic kilometres of water on the Earth. So, where did it all come from? Well, It's interesting because one way to answer that question is that you look at the water we have around us on Earth and you ask, well, what is the chemical fingerprint? In other words, what are the ratios of different flavours of elements like hydrogen because they come in different flavours called isotopes? What are the ratios on Earth and how do they compare to other things out there in space? Because if you can find something in space which has the same molecular fingerprint to the ones that we have on Earth, that would suggest that things like the thing out in space you've spotted would probably be the thing that gave us all our water. Now, when scientists have done this in the past, they've looked at the ratio of deuterium, heavy hydrogen to hydrogen, in our water on Earth, and then they've scanned the skies, and they've found that the closest match are asteroids and meteorites, in other words, things that would have hit the Earth in the past. They appear to have things in them that bear the closest molecular resemblance. They discounted comets, though, because when they looked at comets, like Halley's Comet out in the Oort cloud, they seemed to have far too much of the heavy form of hydrogen, so they were written off as a possibility. But now there's a paper which has been published this week in the journal Nature, which has completely turned the tables, or maybe I should say turned the tide, on this watery argument. This is by Paul Hartog, who's a researcher at the Max. Planck Institute for Solar System Research in Germany. And what he and his team have been doing is using the Herschel Space Observatory, this is a telescope out in space, to look at a comet Hartley-2 after the Australian scientist who first spotted it. It orbits somewhere between the Earth and Jupiter. And when they looked at the comma The pall of debris being boiled off from this comet as it goes near the sun. There is the molecular signature in there of water, which is almost an identical match for that which we see on Earth. And this strongly suggests to us that comets like this may actually well be the sole source of the water we have on Earth. They would have hit the Earth in its early history once it had cooled down a little bit after it first formed and deposited most of the water here. Why did we miss them before? Well, the answer is that comets come in two flavours. There are those comets that come from way out deep in our solar system, in what's called the Oort cloud, at a distance of more than 5,000 times the distance between the Earth and the Sun away. And then there's a second cluster of comets, which come from much further in, Uh, They originate in what's called the Kuiper Belt, which is maybe 50 times further between the Earth and the Sun. And so what we think happened is that scientists previously only looked at the Oort cloud comets, and they discounted these ones that are a bit closer in. And they actually have the right ratio, so they probably were the source of most of the water that we have. So that clears up that watery mystery. And certainly an interesting thing to do, because it's based on one comet. They'll have to look at some more, but it's the first time anyone's studied one of these particular comets. You can find that published in Nature this week. Cap.
2: Talk about making a splash. Thank
1: you. Now another big uh, event we've had this week is of course the Nobel Prizes which were announced and joining us to walk us through who got what, where and when and why is BBC science correspondent Victoria Gill. Hello Hello there. So tell us first of all, Nobel Prizes where do you want to kick off? Who got what? And well, let's,
3: let's do it in order that they were announced. It's always a fun week on the science desk um, when the Nobel Prizes are on because we actually get to cover a breaking story rather than perusing all the literature and, and trying to pitch science stories to all the editors. They, they want stuff from us so it's really exciting. So the first one um, the Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine was shared between three researchers. Half of the uh, million pound prize, almost a million pounds, went to Bruce Butler and Jules Hoffman. And this whole prize was to do with the immune system. So what Bruce Butler and Jules Hoffman did was figure out the, um, the gene that's responsible for your innate immune system. And that just means the gene that kind of gets switched on so that your immune system figures out that there's a nasty microorganism, something foreign in your body and tries to get rid of it. But there's another part to your immune system that's really important your adaptive immune system, which you kind of might be more familiar with from being vaccinated. So when kids get jabs to sort of trigger those antibodies and, and that's that's how your body adapts to be able to retain a memory, really, of something nasty that caused an infection before to get rid of it. And Ralph Steinman discovered the gatekeepers to the adaptive immune system because obviously you don't want your body turning on some organism that's or cell that's already in your body that's doing no harm at all. You want it to be recognising foreign stuff that's going to cause a problem. And these are called dendritic cells and they can switch on your T-cells, which are part of your adaptive immune system and create that memory. Um, so really remarkable stuff.
1: There was a sort of controversy that raged around Ralph Steinman, wasn't there?
3: There was indeed. Uh, tragically, he died three days before the award was announced and the Nobel Committee hadn't realised because there is actually a strict rule that a person who is deceased will not be considered for the prize, but they didn't know and he's been allowed to, uh, it's a bit of a historic moment to keep that prize um, posthumously. So that's, uh, I think that's very fitting.
1: Didn't he also experiment on himself?
3: Yeah. Yeah, he did. He died of pancreatic cancer and um, there's an amazing story. Um, there's, I won't have a huge amount of time to go into it now, but there's a great story on the BBC website actually just about how he took research to a whole new kind of personal level because he was actually testing pieces of his own cancer to see if he could raise an immune response to them. So really remarkable stuff.
1: OK, well let's go from Earth out into space because the physics prize was to a clutch of scientists who were looking at the expanding universe because we've actually interviewed a couple of them on The Naked Scientist.
3: Yeah, indeed a remarkable bunch of guys and um, in really, really keen, I think, competition which is, I think is why they managed to turn the tables on what we believed about what the universe is doing so quickly. Um, Saul Perlmutter, Brian Schmidt and Adam Rees um, shared the Nobel Prize for physics for figuring out that the universe, the universe's expansion is not slowing down, it's actually speeding up. And the sort of interesting postscript of that is that there must be some force counteracting gravity to allow that to happen. So it seems like a huge amount of our universe is made up by this mysterious force called dark energy and there's an amazing comment from the Nobel committee that said now we know this everything is possible which I just think is a wonderful statement about just how little we know about the universe and how much more there is to find out and they've sort of opened that door
1: super well let's go to chemistry because that's the the third prize isn't it so what was given away for chemistry in to whom and for what?
3: It is indeed Dan Schechtman from the Israel Institute of Technology won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry for discovering quasi-crystals. Um, and my reaction to this was, "What on earth is a quasi-crystal?" Um, which is apparently the Mine shout too. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm ashamed to say as a, a former Chemistry World reporter. Um, but I've been I've been doing some reading around it, and it's a really remarkable story. He, what he basically discovered when he looked at a very rapidly cooled metal alloy to see what the structure was. Now this shouldn't have been a crystalline structure at all, very, very rapidly cooling a liquid should just throw all of those atoms into disorder, but it was a crystal um, which is not too unusual, lots of crystals in nature but it was very, very weird it had this tenfold symmetry, what he was seeing was concentric circles of ten points, and what that meant was you couldn't really create a crystal out of what he was looking at. He actually said such a creature cannot exist because if you imagine, it'd be like trying to make a spherical football out of just six-pointed polygons. It just doesn't work, it doesn't fit together and it's taken mathematicians and even artists to figure out what these quasicrystals are and that they can form. So he really he turned everything around in terms of what we thought of how matter can be structured and he was thrown out of his research institute for that, so a really brave guy kind of standing up for his research.
1: Has he got his job back?
3: <laughs> He's got a new job now and a Nobel Prize, so I think he'll be—I uh, think he'll be laughing now.
1: So the good guys won in the end. Indeed, Victoria, thank you very much for the rapid roundup on what's happened in this year's Nobels. That's Victoria Gill. She is the science correspondent for the BBC, taking us through what happened this year at the Nobel Prizes. Now, Kat, um, this one's an interesting story, which is getting to the heart of what we can actually do for heart disease, and this is important because. The World Health Organization estimates that by 2020, in Western countries, heart disease is going to account for about 40% of all-cause mortality. In other words, you've got a pretty high chance of dying of something going wrong with your heart. Thankfully, the strides that have been made in dealing with heart disease in recent years have been pretty huge, and probably the largest amongst them is the technique angioplasty. Now, what this involves is threading a very tiny cannula in through an artery, either through the top of the leg or you can go in through an artery in the arm to go into the coronary arteries which are the blood vessels that supply the heart muscle and you can locate blockages in those arteries and where previously you would have had to open up someone's chest and then plumb in new bits of blood vessel to bypass a blockage now what you can do is to inflate a tiny balloon on the end of this cannula inside a blockage open up the artery again, and then you can insert something called a stent, which is like a tiny metal cage, which keeps the artery propped open and it restores the flow. And this has revolutionised the treatment of heart disease, made a huge difference to patients' lives. The problem is that if you just do this with a straightforward metal cage, then the artery is injured in the process of inserting the stent and it gets inflamed. And this then leads to a build-up of new tissue to repair the damage, which ends up blocking up the stent again. So what researchers then did was develop what they call drug-eluting stents. And these drug-eluting stents pump out chemicals, including one called paclitaxel, which stops the tissue locally from growing. And this keeps the stent open. The problem is that, ironically now, these are very effective, these stents, but one third of patients who have them then develop a blood clot inside the stent. And what researchers think is going on is that because the stent now stops cells growing locally, it also prevents the growth of endothelial cells, which are like the pavement cells that smoothly line the inside of arteries and stop blood clots from forming. So what a group have done over in Germany, and this is Christian Weber, who's at the University of Munich. They've published a paper in Science Translational Medicine this week. They have found a chemical called catholicidin, which is made by neutrophils, a kind of white blood cell, which when it's added to the wall of the artery where it's injured, actually stops the cells proliferating and growing and making this blockage which blocks up stents. So they wondered whether they could actually use this same chemical to produce a stent that elutes this material and encourages the endothelial cells to grow back in but stops the rest of the vessel becoming inflamed and blocking again. So they did some studies on mice. They made one of these drug-eluting stents with the, which they put into their mice and the stent made this cathelicidin chemical. When they looked at it at four weeks later, they found that the mice that had got stents which eluted this chemical locally had very little narrowing and re-blockage of the stents compared with control animals where there was almost total occlusion of the stents. So, although this is only a study in mice so far and needs to be shown in humans, it looks like they may have found a way around the problem that we've created effectively with these new drug eluting stents. And given the importance of heart disease, that's really good news.
2: It certainly is. I look forward to seeing uh, that progressing into human trials. But now, with a roundup of some of the other significant science this week, here's Mira Senthillingham with this week's Naked Scientist News Flash.
4: Understanding the origins of the universe is now within our grasp thanks to a new radio telescope turned on this week in Chile. The Atacama Large Millimetre Array, or ALMA, located high up in the Atacama Desert of the Chilean Andes, is the largest, most expensive ground-based telescope ever built. With an array of 66 giant antennae, it will enable scientists to probe deep space, using wavelengths of light never observed before to explore the early universe, as ALMA's Antonio Halles explains.
5: Between the radio and far infrared frequencies, lays the millimeter and submillimeter range, which is where ALMA will operate. It carries information on the cold universe, cold clouds of dust and gas in which galaxies form. So ALMA will provide observations of those very first galaxies, how did they form, how the stars in those galaxies form, and how Those galaxies and those stars evolved in order to form the universe we see today.
4: Scientists have created mice with the rodent equivalent of the human condition, autism. By adding to experimental animals extra copies of the gene UBE3A, which has previously been linked to autism in humans, Harvard Medical School scientist Matt Anderson and his colleagues have been able to produce mice showing similar communication and behavioural problems to those seen in autistic patients.
5: The mice show no social interaction,
4: have reduced speech or communication, and they have increased repetitive behaviours. There's really very little used right now to improve communication, social interaction. Most of the therapies are directed towards the associated symptoms like anxiety, sleep disturbances, epilepsy. I think that this tool is going to be a great way to try to find things that
0: will treat those core symptoms.
4: The European Space Agency has this week agreed to lead the biggest project yet to study the behaviour of our sun. The seven-year solar orbiter mission, due to launch in 2017 will involve the construction of a shielded probe that will orbit at 42 million kilometres from the Sun, a distance closer than any spacecraft to date and nearer even than the orbit of Mercury. Exposed to temperatures of up to 5,000 degrees Celsius, the probe will provide unprecedented insight into the workings of our nearest star and how it affects the Earth. Fabio Favata from the European Space Agency.
6: By doing this, we'll observe uh, the origin of phenomena, such as coronal mass ejections or even the simple solar wind, especially more and more in an era in which we are relying more and more on high technology equipment. We are relying on satellite communication, on satellite navigation and so forth. So in addition to probing some very fundamental scientific questions, it will also help us understand the influence of those mechanisms on the Earth and therefore cater for them, prevent damage and so forth.
4: Monkeys have been trained to control a virtual arm on a computer, using activity recorded from their brains. The device, created by Duke University's Miguel Nicolelis, allowed the monkeys to move and feel objects in a virtual world, controlled purely by their thoughts. Electrical signals were also sent back to their brains to distinguish the textures of the objects they were touching. The team hoped to develop the technology to help paralysed patients.
7: Basically, what we have done is to create the first brain-machine-brain interface that allows both electrical signals from the brain to control the movements of artificial devices and also to provide tactile feedback from these devices directly to the brain without interference of uh, the body of the subject. Basically, this uh, is aimed at creating a new generation of neuroprosthetic devices. Uh, A whole-body
5: robotic vest, an exoskeleton, that will be used to restore mobility in severely paralysed patients.
4: And finally, it seems chivalry isn't dead after all. Well, in crickets, that is. Studying field crickets in the wild, Rolando Rodriguez-Munoz found that when mated pairs of crickets entered their burrows, males allowed their female partners to seek sanctuary first whilst they waited outside increasing their own risk of predation and putting their lives at risk. But as a reward, these males got to mate with the female more frequently, resulting in more offspring inheriting their genes.
5: Most of people are thinking that this behaviour would be more likely to, to happen in humans or closely related mammals. And we can see that even a small insects can behave in being chivalrous with females. So it's good for, for both males get more offspring and females... Reduce their risk to, of being predated.
4: The findings counter previous theories that males guard in this way to stop other males mating with the females. The males are effectively trading a long life for one with greater reproductive success. And
2: that was Mira St. with this week's Naked Scientist News Flash. If you'd like to follow up on any of the stories you've heard so far, the transcripts and references are all available at thenakedscientist.com slash news.
1: Thanks, Kat. In Second Life, CB I said, I always thought that optimistic people, and this is referring to the story you did first, Kat, just didn't understand what was going on. Kathleen in Lowestoft said, what is it that makes some people able to cope with anything? Well, I think that goes back to the point that Kat made in her story, which is that there are some people who show brain activity that is strongly consistent with them viewing the glass as half full rather than half empty.
0: Distilling the Best Science The Naked Scientists This
1: is The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. Today we're looking at some alternatives to petrol and later in the programme Emma Stoy will be boarding a biofuel-powered bus to discover how algae could be the future basis for making biodiesel.
2: But first, phytoplankton are the smallest organisms in the sea. These tiny little plants provide the base of the food chain for marine life and they generate energy by harvesting the power of sunlight using chlorophyll and drawing CO2 out of the atmosphere. But although they may be very small, they can still be studied from space. Planet Earth podcast presenter Sue Nelson's been speaking to Earth observation scientist Peter Miller from the Plymouth Marine Laboratory.
8: Although chlorophyll and the plankton are individually microscopic, in massive numbers and concentrations, that tints the water, the shade of green that we're familiar with, and that is what we can detect from satellites. We can see how green the water is from space, and with algorithms we can convert that into a measure of the chlorophyll and hence the amount of plankton in the water.
9: And why do you want to know how much plankton is in the water?
8: Because plankton is so important for the carbon cycle and for other marine life, it's very important that we know where it's growing, how that's changing in our changing climate, if there's any migration of the plankton further north with warmer seas, if there's change in the types of plankton that's growing... It's a good measure of how healthy the ocean is.
9: Why use a satellite for this when you could maybe just use a a research ship?
8: The satellites give us a wonderful coverage of the ocean almost globally every day. So depending on the cloud cover, we can see through to the ocean and build up a picture of every part of the ocean on a daily timescale and that allows us to follow the progression of blooms. We can see the seasonal cycle. We can monitor for particular blooms that might be of interest, like like harmful algae.
9: Most algal blooms, like the one 50 miles long off the coast of Devon and Cornwall earlier this year, are both natural and benign. And they're also an important food source. But some blooms can be a problem.
8: It's only particularly dense blooms that when they decay, the bacteria can consume all of the oxygen in the water, usually in the deeper part of that ocean. So it's there where it can have a significant effect on the marine life. Certain types of algae, under certain conditions, can produce toxins, you know, poisonous substances that get released into the water. When they're consumed by shellfish, for instance, they can get concentrated, and it's very bad news then if humans eat that poisonous shellfish.
9: Can you tell purely from satellite data whether a bloom is harmful or not
8: by its colour, maybe? This is what we're studying under a a European project called Aquamar. And within that, we're trying to develop our tools for assessing particular characteristic colours that certain blooms indicate when they're harmful. We're studying the whole archive of data. We're picking out examples of blooms that were harmful, and we're then trying to classify new satellite images to see if they're similar in colour to those known blooms.
9: What can this sort of information be used for, then?
8: It's very important for the aquaculture industry. They need to know if harmful blooms are going to affect their fish farms or shellfish. It's important for the authorities that deal with bathing water, because... It it may be something that they need to warn the public about when it happens. It can also be important for climate change studies. We need to know if certain kinds of harmful algae blooms are going to occur more frequently with the changing climate.
9: And when do you think you'll be in a position to actually produce a sort of
8: algal bloom early warning system? We've got prototype systems that we've involved with the Environment Agency in the UK and we're now testing them around Europe. I should say that this work is based upon our national capability, which is the NEADAS service. That provides us with the core capability to process huge quantities of satellite images every day and very quickly, so that if a bloom does happen, we can provide this kind of information the same day that we get the satellite image.
2: That was Peter Miller from the Plymouth Marine Laboratory talking to Sue Nelson about a possible early warning system for algal blooms. And you can find more Planet Earth online resources via our website. Just go to thenakedscientist.com slash planetearth.
1: Thank you, Kat. Now this week we're investigating alternatives to fossil fuels. Biofuel production is on the increase, with very much research focusing on new carbon-neutral ways to produce things like diesel. You may have noticed in many places also biobuses, these run not surprisingly on biofuels, are springing up on the streets. There are quite a few of them here in Cambridge. And earlier this week Emma Stoy took a ride on one of them along with three scientists from Cambridge University who are helping to develop ways to use algae to make diesel.
10: I'm riding on one of Cambridge's biobuses, so named because they run on 100% biodiesel. Now, at the moment, this comes from recycled cooking oil, but in the not-so-distant future, biodiesel could come from quite a different source, algae. Joining me on board are three researchers from the Department of Plant Sciences at Cambridge University, Elena Kazamia, Jetan Chen and Dr Nick Ross. They all work with algae, and they're here to tell me about its potential as a fuel source.
6: Well, we're definitely running out of fossil fuels and even if we're not running out anytime soon, we're definitely running out of cheap fuel. So the necessity for biofuels is increasing. Algae are um, a very general group of organisms, pretty much anything that lives in water and photosynthesizes. They can be single-celled or giant kelp, for example, the big seaweed, that's also technically algae. There are many reasons why we prefer to grow algae on a large scale for biodiesel production over any conventional land plant. Algae do not grow on arable land, so you're not competing with food production. So
10: how do you get from an, an algae photosynthesising sort of diesel that you could
6: put into a car or into a bus? Some algae, like ourselves, store energy in the form of lipid. Some algal species can have up to 70% of their mass in oil And so all you need to do really is then break that cell open and release the fuel molecules. You can do that either using solvents on an industrial scale or one of the things we're investigating in our laboratory is the use of enzymes to break some of the cell wall components, which then makes uh, the extraction of the oil a lot easier.
10: And Jiton, once you've extracted these oils from the algae how do you then convert them into actual diesel?
7: So the molecule that we're actually extracting from algae are known as triacylglycerols Uh, and you can't actually put these molecules into an engine. They are not very friendly for internal combustion so what you have to do is to use a process known as transesterification and what transesterification does is it converts triacylglycerol into molecules known as fatty acid methyl esters and these molecules are structurally very similar to the diesel that you get from petroleum and therefore they can be used in current engines with little or no modification.
10: Nick, is it possible to scale this up so you can produce diesel on a much more industrial scale, the scale on which it's demanded at the moment?
11: Algae are already grown on industrial scale to make different types of products. In Australia, for example, they grow algae in, in giant ponds to get various types of antioxidants so you could do a similar thing, growing algae in large ponds, and so you could really scale up. And the size that you'd want to scale up to is enormous. It would be something like 10,000 hectares as the starting size of algal ponds.
10: So what's standing in the way
12: now?
11: So the problem right now is that it's just too expensive to make diesel from algae. And that's just because the costs are really quite large, building massive ponds, uh, the costs of extraction. So even though it, it's a really attractive way to get energy... At the moment, it costs about twice as much to make it as you could sell it for. And then the efficiency of the process is something like 2%. So we're looking at ways in which we could actually improve that. We're looking at ways to genetically engineer the algae to make them more efficient at the way that they capture light and then can convert that into, ultimately, the the types of fuel molecules that we want.
10: And I understand that's something you're looking at, Jitin. You're actually studying the different genetic pathways algae use to produce oils, and more importantly, the right kinds of oils?
7: Yes. The idea is that although algae do produce oils, the oils that they produce may not be necessarily the ones that we would like to put into our engines. One of the biggest problems of biofuels is that certain types of biofuels tend to freeze under low temperatures, and therefore, you know, you have to do something. You either put some sort of chemical in the fuel to make them have a lower freezing temperature or you genetically engineer the algae so that they produce oil that is more liquid under low temperatures. And there are various other things, you know, how much and how strongly these fuels burn are dependent on the characteristics of the fuel molecules and all that can be manipulated genetically.
10: How would you then genetically manipulate the algae to produce large quantities of those kinds of oils?
7: The first step is to shut down or reduce the amount of what we call secondary pathways or side-chain pathways, the alternative pathways that would take away molecules that we want to convert into biofuel and change them to something else. And you can do that in two ways. You can either improve the genes that are in the pathway you want or you remove the genes that are in the pathways that you don't want. But obviously, we have to be really careful because these are living organisms. If you tinker too much with the internal genetics of the organism, it may die or it may start to produce something that you don't want.
10: Eleanor, how long do you think it will take until a bus like this is run on algae via diesel?
6: I think it depends how optimistic you are. The optimists say we are ready to scale up. The pessimists say it will never happen. Another fundamental thing that stands in the way of production on a large scale is that we simply can't replicate what we're doing in the lab outdoors. We simply don't know how how the algae as living organisms interact with their environment. So even though we have these amazing strains that we're developing in the lab that are genetically modified, can have very good lipid production, have fantastic efficiencies, if they then get eaten by something or if your ponds get populated by some other competing organism that contaminates it and you have to shut down your production system, that's also a very bad thing. The technology is not quite ready, the research is ongoing, but there's definitely a lot of will within the scientific community. And so I think, and I don't think I'm exaggerating, but I think somewhere around 10 years perhaps.
1: Eleanor Kazamir from Cambridge University ending that report by our Naked Scientist reporter Emma Stoy.
2: Now, waste is a big problem all over the world, and in the UK alone we throw away over 7 million tonnes of food every year, the majority of which goes to landfill. But thanks to recent advances in microbial biotechnology, this waste could become a valuable source of energy in the future. And using bacteria, scientists are now able to convert this waste into useful biohydrogen. We're joined by Dr Mark Redwood from the University of Birmingham. Good evening, Mark.
13: Good evening, Kat. Thanks for having me on the show.
2: Now, anyone who's had a rather whiffy bin will know (laughs) that bacteria can generate gases. But um, Mm. how are you actually making bacteria generate hydrogen from food waste?
13: Okay. So the first thing to say about biohydrogen from waste is that it, it's difficult to answer a question straight because uh, it's still a, an area of research and everybody has different ideas about the right way to do it. And there are lots of different bacteria that will do it. And actually, the capacity to make hydrogen is virtually ubiquitous among the, the, uh, you know, among the microbial world. Um, there are certain uh, there are real, real special organisms that we've singled out which are really good for the process. Generally, you can say it'll either work in the dark or it'll work in sunlight. Uh, so if you, if you just take a, a pile of, uh, of potato peels or something and you seal it in a container so that the air can't get in, the bacteria will begin to, to consume the sugars and use up the oxygen. It'll go anaerobic. There's enzymes in there called hydrogenases, will will switch on, and then it, it will begin to fill that chamber with hydrogen. And the process of doing that, it'll also make some CO2 and also make some organic acids. And those are what you're smelling. It's not the hydrogen that you can smell, because hydrogen itself is odourless. But uh, those dark organisms, as they break down the, the carbon sources, they'll produce a lot of things like acetic acid, vinegar, or butyric acid, which is very, very smelly. Um, but it's actually uh, completely harmless. It's even added to some foods as a, for extra flavour. The other thing that you can do is uh, you can take those organic acids and you can feed them to a second kind of bacteria. Uh, these ones that live on sunlight, these are my favourites. These are the, the purple bacteria. And what they do... You use those organic acids and they react them using an enzyme called nitrogenase. And if you set up the reactor just right and give it sunlight, then it will make a lot more hydrogen.
2: So you've got these bacteria in a canister and then you're taking the things from them. Is there a risk? How how do you actually trap the hydrogen? Because presumably there may be other contaminating gases in there. Is, is this really a good source of, of clean fuel, of clean hydrogen?
13: Well, funnily enough, it's actually one of the cleanest ways to get hydrogen. Um, I mean, everybody knows now that, that hydrogen is the fuel of the future. It's got all sorts of fantastic advantages. And just for the research market, people are looking at, at having to scale up the hydrogen production uh, industry um, because people are developing fuel cells left, right and centre, so they need lots of hydrogen for it. Everyone agrees that that hydrogen is going to come from natural gas to begin with, through the traditional process of, of uh, steam methane reforming. Um, the problem with that chemical process is that it generates a lot of carbon monoxide, and which is a contaminant in the gas. And it's especially important as a contaminant if you're going to use the hydrogen in fuel cells, especially the kind that will be used in, in, in experimental cars, fuel, fuel cell cars. Um, whereas as we eventually move towards biohydrogen, that problem will, will disappear because the gas is inherently pure. It doesn't contain carbon monoxide to begin with. The only contaminant really is, is CO2 and it comes out at really 90% hydrogen or more in the first place. And CO2 is very easy to separate from hydrogen.
2: And so what, what kind of waste are we talking about here? I mean just generally uh, I, I'm an avid composter so every week uh, I send my little bin of compost that gets collected by the council. Uh, mostly mouldy bread because my housemates aren't very good at shopping properly. But what, what kind of food waste could you use? Could it literally be anything?
13: It should really be anything. Obviously, the more uh, organic it is, the better. It shouldn't contain too much uh, things like, you know, the packaging, the plastics, tins. Uh, Those won't do any good because they won't break down. Um, But see, the thing to understand about composting is what it really boils down to is allowing the natural degradation to occur, but with lots and lots of aeration, you know, getting oxygen in there, and that encourages the, the aerobic respiration to happen, uh, to get that, that, all that carbon to turn into CO2 as quickly as possible. And the only useful thing that you get from composting is heat. As I've, everyone will know, compost heap gets warm. You can sometimes find a cat sitting on them. But if you, if you take the same waste and seal it in a pot so that the air doesn't get in there, then it will either go to, to make methane, or if you do it under certain controlled conditions, it will make hydrogen and organic acids. And we think that if you're just examining the biochemistry and the, the stoichiometry of these reactions, if you can take that dark hydrogen reaction and use the organic acids from that to feed to purple bacteria, then we should get uh, about more than two times as much energy value as what you would get if you let it react through normal digestion to methane. So making hydrogen will give you more energy than making methane.
2: So this all sounds brilliant. We can stick our bacteria and our rubbish in a pot and we'll get hydrogen out of it. How close are we to actually scaling this up? What sort of challenges have you still got to overcome before this is suitable on an industrial scale?
13: Okay. Well, I think one of the main challenges is that the market isn't there for biohydrogen, really. People at the moment are much more used to liquid fuels, um, which is good for us in a way, because these, uh, the, the algal oil people are blazing the trails for us, developing uh, solar reactors, uh, which we will then be able to use uh, to, to make biohydrogen. Um, cause that's one of the main issues is getting those reactors developed up to to a level where uh, where where they can be used economically and efficiently and where they can be produced at in very large quantities uh, very cheaply
2: where are you at you know what what do you think is the most exciting things that you've come up with lately in your research
13: oh well that just happens we've uh, just had something hot out of the lab uh, a couple of weeks ago which is uh, a a real development we've kind of added 75 percent to the the photosynthetic productivity um what we, we've had this uh, project running with uh, the manchester photon science institute about using one sunbeam to drive not one but two different photobioreactors containing two different kinds of organism and the way that works is that as we know a uh, sunlight is composed of the of a whole rainbow a whole spectrum of different uh, wavelengths and uh, the purple bacteria that make hydrogen happen to like a particular part of that spectrum, whereas green organisms like the, or the algae that make oil or the spirulina that make nice health foods that you can buy in health food shops and eat as a food supplement, those green organisms and the purple organisms both prefer different parts of the spectrum. And so all we needed to do was find a way to separate the the sunbeam into those two beams and direct each at a separate reactor and we'd be able to double the productivity that you get from a single sunbeam. So we set this, up this project with the University of Manchester and they told us about dichroic mirrors, which turn out to be absolutely perfect for the job. And so we, we found that we can add 75% to the photosynthetic yield.
2: Uh, that sounds absolutely fantastic. So um, that's Mark Redwood from the University of Birmingham and he's going to be with us for the rest of the show. So if you've got any questions for him and about biohydrogen uh, and maybe even your compost heap, do get in touch.
1: Tweet at Naked Scientists or send us an email, chris at the
0: Scientist.com. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists.
1: And you're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. We're looking at the future of fuels this week. And we've just heard from Mark Redwood that hydrogen can be produced in one way, using bacteria. There are also others. It's a very clean fuel. But how can we actually use it in practice? Well, one way is to feed it into a process which is called a fuel cell that can generate electricity, and you, you then use this to drive an electric motor, which is connected to a drive wheel or even a propeller. Because Ben Valsall has been to Bristol to meet Jazz Singh, who is from Auriga Energy, and Keith Dunstan from the Bristol Packet Boat Company to hear about a project that they're launching to power boats using this new technology.
14: I'm standing down on the docks near Narrow Quay in Bristol, surrounded on all sides by water and boats all around me, small pleasure boats off to the right, big industrial-looking things on the left. I'm joined by Jazz Singh, the owner of Auriga Energy. Jazz, what's your interest in marine technology?
12: I'm in, in here to build hydrogen-powered boats and to operate them, to bring zero-carbon operations to water up so that we can actually help to reduce the global warming gases that are plaguing us. Why
14: hydrogen in particular? What are the other options and why have you gone for that one?
12: Hydrogen provides the most sustainable clean fuel around because hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe and when operated through a a fuel cell system which is a highly efficient electrical generation system the output exhaust is pure water so it is the most emission-free energy generation system that, that you can imagine. So just take me through the fuel cell itself. How does that actually work? A fuel cell is a reverse electrolysis in that, if you remember from your school days, if you put uh, electrodes in a beaker of water, you can break up the water into its constituent parts of hydrogen and oxygen. In a fuel cell, you bring hydrogen and oxygen together with a catalyst and you recreate water as the exhaust and you liberate some electrons and produce lots of electricity. And then we can use the electricity to power whatever we need, in this case, lights and, and motors.
14: So where does the hydrogen that you're using as a fuel, where does that actually come from?
12: Hydrogen at the moment is a byproduct of a lot of the chemical industries and in essence if we didn't use it for fuel cell systems it would be flared off or just wasted and in future and also happening at present is that we will generate hydrogen from renewable resources and therefore hydrogen will be a totally green fuel.
14: How else do you make hydrogen?
12: Well, hydrogen can be made by storing energy energy from wind power, from solar, from wave, tidal. And in addition, the the one that is my favourite is recycling waste because we generate waste and we are recycling it. There was a study done in London by the London Hydrogen Partnership that if they use the energy generated from the waste recycling programme that they've got in place, they could manufacture enough hydrogen to run the entire bus fleet in London. And London has 10,000 buses intensely used. So that is one of the many ways forward. And waste recycling through, through various anaerobic digestion systems kills two birds with one stone. And how do you actually store the hydrogen on the boat? Hydrogen is stored in a a filament-wound tank, purpose-built tank, in compressed gas. In future, there is research going on around the world to encapsulate hydrogen in porous metals, in essence, which will be more efficient in volume terms, and so that's the direction the world is heading in. At the moment, it's in compressed gas at 350 bar. Keith Dunstan, you run the Bristol
14: Packet boat company here, and you're helping to design this hydrogen-powered boat. At the moment, what is it that boats actually run on?
15: Well, all boats run on diesel. The whole marine industry runs on diesel and is one of the highest producers of uh, carbon, more than aviation or or any other industry. Ships going around the world are hugely polluting. And we run diesel boats all around the docks here. And uh, hopefully, one day, we'll be running them on hydrogen, which will be a lot cleaner, a lot more efficient, and... um, Cheaper. Well, hopefully that's the only way it's going to really happen when people start realising that you know, diesel is only going to get more and more expensive and eventually will run out and, and we need something else.
14: So can you just strap a hydrogen fuel cell and a big tank full of hydrogen into an existing
15: boat or do we need to do a bit more in order to integrate this? Well, you could do that, but I don't think you get any, anyone to allow you to carry passengers. <laughs> I think you've got to get a little bit more serious about the regulations and how you can do it safely. And that's what we're trying to prove at the moment how you can do it safely. When we first went to the uh, Marine Coast Guard agency and said, look, we're going to build a hydrogen fuel cell boat, and they said, what? what? What is that? And you know, we haven't got any regulations, we know nothing about it. You know, it'd probably take five years before we actually uh, allow you to build this thing. Since then we've been in touch with various ministers uh, who have put a bit of pressure on the MCA and they have actually have, in the, in, within, a, within six months they came up with some regulations. Well they actually just decided to use the German regulations and as long as we comply with the German regulations we can build a passenger boat now carrying any number of passengers. So obviously
14: there's been lots of legal red tape to go through. What about the engineering
15: challenges? How have you actually built the new boat? It's a pretty standard boat, it's just that it's uh, you know fairly sleek. It's not, we're not using a huge amount of power on this boat. We, in fact, we're up to 10 horsepower, so the boat's got to be fairly lightly built. It's got to be robust, strong enough to uh, withstand being knocked around the docks here. We've got to also bulkhead off the various elements of this thing. We've got a fuel tank and we've got the fuel cells, and we don't want the two to be... In any way connected, you know, we don't want any sparks in either of those areas. There's three compartments really. You need in any of these systems, you need a, f- a compartment for your f- fuel cells, a compartment for your tank, and a compartment for your electric motors and batteries and all the things that spark. James, we've just mentioned a ten horsepower engine. That
14: doesn't sound like a lot. How much energy can you get from a fuel cell?
12: Fuel cells can, can produce almost infinite energy in that they're scalable to whatever size you want. At this moment in time, there are buses running throughout the world. In, in London, for example, there are five buses running which are over 100 kilowatts worth of power on board. And in future, we, we see even bigger uh, fuel cell systems. There, the big corporations such as Siemens are working on megawatt-sized fuel cell systems which will be available to provide stationary power to, uh, to big plants. And, Keith, coming back to you, how does this compare to an engine that
15: you'd see in in
14: one of these boats around us? Again, 10 horsepower doesn't sound like a lot of power. Is that enough?
15: I I think it will be enough. We're told by people that are very experienced in electric motors and steam engines, it's very comparable. When when you say 10 horsepower for a diesel engine, you need to get to maximum revs before you get that 10 horsepower. 10 horsepower an electric motor is there right from the beginning, the torque right from your very first revolution is 10 horsepower so it's absolutely there so i think we'll probably have enough yeah anyway we can if we don't we'll add some more fuel cells and what's the the long-term plan Uh,
14: jazz coming back to you clearly this is a bit of a pilot study and now you're finally going to get something on the water where do you take it from there
12: this is a pathways uh, a project to clear all the blockages to introduce this as a permanent installation. So where we take it is that once we've done our demonstration, cleared all the pathways, we, we then want to generate the hydrogen locally and introduce fuel cell hydrogen operations throughout the Bristol Harbour area and reduce the, uh, the, the CO2 output.
1: It's Jas Singh from Auriga Energy and before him, Keith Dunstan from the Bristol Packet Company. And in partnership with the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, that company, Auriga, are teaming up with universities across the country to research better ways to make, store and use hydrogen. So we could be seeing hydrogen transport popping up nationwide before too long, cap
2: And if you'd like to know more about how fuel cells work, Sarah explains it all in the latest Naked Scientist scrapbook video. That's online now at thenakedscientist.com slash scrapbook.
1: We're discussing the fuels of the future this week and joining us to help us do that is from the University of Birmingham, Dr Mark Redwood. Uh, Mark, we've got lots of questions coming in. We asked people earlier their perceptions or their opinions on the, the idea of a hydrogen fuel economy and whether or not they would drive a hydrogen powered car. Sean Hoskins said, well, when they make hydrogen cars that go from 0 to 60 in 4.6 seconds, then we can talk. And then Jesse Chubb says, well, actually, they already do. And then Jesse Chubb goes on to say, hydrogen is clean. But I like the idea of using natural gas. It seems that oil can be made from algae and bacteria eating the algae can make methane. Then there are all the natural gas deposits caught between bedrock deposits, frozen methane hydrates on the ocean floor and so on, and natural gas coming out of landfill. Making a waste product and natural process fit into a primary fuel source seems like a very attractive option to me. What do you think?
13: Those routes to making methane are actually really good ideas, and uh, as we know, it, all, all of the the waste uh, treatment plants have been making biogas uh, by that method for for many years. Uh, one of the newer ideas is to culture uh, biofuels or uh, sort of bio. Energy crops or even algae, feed them into a digester and make methane. And uh, w- w- what we think the, the thing about hydrogen is first that you'd have a, a carbon a, a carbon free economy, but also that when you look at the the biochemistry and the energy pathways involved, um, in instead of making those algae or crops and then turning them into methane, if you can make hydrogen directly, it'll be more efficient and you'll effectively get more energy from a certain amount of land, which is gathering a certain amount of sunlight.
1: OK, well, that sounds like a reasonably compelling argument. Now, the other thing that has come up a lot in what people are discussing on our Facebook analysis of this, if you want to go there, it's facebook.com slash scientist Jason Wallace says, I'd love a hydrogen car. Well, actually, he says, hell, yes, but I'm paraphrasing. He says, the fact that there's one filling station, though, and it's in, and he quite funnily writes, Swindon, you can't find the hydrogen for sale. I think this raises a very pertinent point about the infrastructure, though, isn't it? It's all very well having uh, people trying to consume hydrogen as a fuel source, but if there's nowhere to fill your car, there's not very good.
13: Well, absolutely. It's a chicken and egg dilemma, and, it, and it's well recognised. The way that, uh, that it's being addressed is that uh, you're starting off with nuclei, foci of hydrogen production, and around from, from their businesses will uh, will get their fleets running off hydrogen, and uh, the, those will grow from the nuclei and eventually be connected. Uh, and there are hydrogen highways, the famous ones in California, and there are some uh, coming up in, in Germany now. I forget the numbers, but Germany already has quite a lot of hydrogen filling stations, and if you look at what they've got planned for the next 10 years, Uh, you know they're they're really serious about moving on to a hydrogen transport system and we can follow.
1: Well that's encouraging. Salen Sonmez also on Facebook raises an interesting question about the cost of production not just of the infrastructure to supply the hydrogen but also the cars and vehicles themselves. Is it just market forces that are meaning these vehicles are currently very expensive and as soon as they become more mainstream the price is just going to fall or is there some fundamental reason why
13: it's going to be more expensive if indeed it is? Well, it is a little bit of both, but I think it's more market forces than anything else. Now, about five years ago, I think what the first proper hydrogen fuel cell car was, was the- technically launched, uh, and they were about a million dollars each. Uh, but now, just now, um, Toyota are, are, are now selling them for just over $100,000 each. So in, in a few years, it's gone down tenfold in price. We've only got to stick with it. The, the fuel, fuel cell market is absolutely skyrocketing, and it's those fuel cells which are the, they're really the key element in, in the hydrogen-powered car. Because what the fuel cell does is it takes the the hydrogen usually stored in a compressed cylinder and it it really efficiently turns it into electricity, which then drives the electric motor. Um, And the the fuel cell is around twice as efficient as a combustion engine. So you can have a hydrogen-powered car using a combustion engine that just burns the hydrogen, but it's much better to use a fuel cell. Of course, this is a very new technology.
1: Andrew Reitermeyer raises what I think is is a very pertinent point, not something we've touched on yet today. And he's making the point that, um, also men- mentioning the, f- the filling station problem, but, but they're making the point about micro-generation. He actually uses the quite nice phrase of our home brewing kits for energy, a practical proposition. In other words, this whole idea that we've gone from scaling up from a fireplace in a house to a power station supplying us with energy from a remote site – coming back now to micro-generation and home creation of energy and electricity again.
13: Well, uh, home energy generation is, is, is definitely a big thing that has got to come in in the future um, because the, the, the more that you generate locally, the less transport is involved of resources and, uh, uh, and that means the more efficient the system is going to be. And when it comes to a system like the kind that I study where we're looking at turning organic wastes into, into energy, then uh, sort of a, a home scale doesn't really work because if you look at the amount of, of organic waste that each home produces, uh, even if you were to invent the most amazing system, that could get all of the energy out of that waste, it's nowhere near enough to, 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 to provide the family with its, with its needs. So what you would actually have to be, be bringing in crops from, from around the local fields. So you'd have to have at least a sort of community level or a, maybe a, a, a block level plant. And I think that those uh, the, those minimum scale limitations apply to, to most of the technologies. One of the best things going on at the moment is that you can get uh, your domestic wind, your domestic photovoltaic panels on your, on the roof of your house, and uh, those are working very well. And you can get uh, some good schemes going on at the moment and actually make money out of those.
1: Luciano Medrano has also written on our Facebook page, what are the disadvantages of things like this, and including algal biodiesel? Can't the pools get weeds and pests and things? And what about your technology? Could you end up with other invasives that then damage the bacteria that you're harnessing to produce the hydrogen?
13: Well, if we're talking about the photobioreactors that I'm thinking of, the ones that use sunlight and purple bacteria, those systems have been tested outdoors in sunlight and run for very long periods. And simply just because they're they're natural species, they're robust, they're not uh, special genetically engineered ones that require careful conditions, um, the conditions in the reactors suit that kind of organism. And the metabolism that they live by produces hydrogen. There's no reason for anything to take over, and it's unlikely to happen. And it's certainly true that is an issue in algal oil production, especially when you're thinking about open ponds, which are open to the atmosphere where anything can blow in. That research field uh, has to prove that the cultures can remain pure enough and stable enough, and uh, they've been doing it for many years, and it's looking very promising. Kat, have you got anything in front of you?
2: Yeah, I've got a a personal question, actually. I I drive a car and I'm perfectly happy with the idea of driving around with a big tank of petrol um, underneath me. But for some reason, I'm slightly nervous about the idea of driving around with a big tank of hydrogen. Uh, For some reason, I just feel it could just explode. Mm. Um, How safe are are hydrogen-driven, say, cars or, or fuel cells compared to combustion engines?
13: Well, this is uh, obviously a, a very uh, often asked question. Most people conclude, and especially when the people who have looked at it really thoroughly conclude, that it's, uh, it's about the same, uh, if anything, possibly a little bit safer with the hydrogen. Now, as we know, hydrogen is easier to ignite than, than petrol. But the thing is, if you have a hydrogen leak, then the hydrogen diffuses away so quickly that uh, the, the, the hazard is very temporary. Conversely, if you have a leak of petrol, it's just going to sit there and cre- until someone cleans it up. And so you, and when it sets on fire, you have a kind of a fire blanket that covers everything and engulfs the car. And if you look up on the Internet, look up uh, Michael Swain. There's a really nice comparison of a, a car on fire, a normal petrol car on fire and a hydrogen car on fire. And you can see that by the time the hydrogen has burned away, the car looks very much the same. Whereas as we've all seen on action films, uh, a burning or even in, in the street, depending on where you live, a burning normal car is uh, very much not a car at the end of it.
2: Fascinating. I live in Hackney, so yeah, burning cars. Um, Anyway, thanks very much for that. That's Mark Redwood from the University of Birmingham. And uh, now we've had a question in from Juan González, who says, could we use urine as a fuel source? Now, interestingly, this is something that Diana O'Carroll has been looking at with our rather
11: poo-powered question of the week.
16: This week, how many ways are there of laying a
11: cable? Hello, I'm Matthew from Cambridge. I was wondering if human excrement can be used to produce electricity. Is this
5: possible?
16: So, once the kids have been dropped off at the pool, can we use the energy from our poo
5: to heat the water? My name's Piers Clark. I'm the commercial director at Thames Water. In Thames Water, we've made energy from poo for many, many decades now, and we do it through a process called anaerobic digestion. And anaerobic digestion is a process that's very similar to what happens inside your stomach, actually, when you eat food. It also happens when we ferment berries to make beer. It's basically the gradual breakdown of organic matter through an, a natural process. And the molecules that make up the, the food that we eat and that and the ultimately come out as poo gradually get broken down until they're, they're into a form of a gas. And the gas is called biogas, and it's a mixture of methane and carbon dioxide. Now, carbon dioxide's naturally in the air, and methane is the gas that people most readily associate with being the gas that you burn on your on your cookers at home. And we run this natural process and have done so for many years. Uh, we produce about 15 million pounds worth of energy every year, which equates to about 15% of our total energy usage in Thames water.
16: So this brown gold can be fermented to produce methane, which can then be used as fuel to heat your home. On the forum, Peppercorn mentioned co-firing, where one substance can be burned alongside coal, for instance, in a power station to produce electricity more efficiently and with fewer sulphur emissions. As Geezer says, it brings a whole new meaning to, honey, please put another log on the fire. And from the
9: bomb of Hades to the bomb of the heavens for next week's question. Hello, I'm Beverly Johnson from Yorkshire, and my question is, if it takes a very massive star collapsing to form a black hole and Hawking's radiation eats it away, why don't black holes explode once they lose enough mass? So, why is it that black holes don't
16: explode when they don't have enough mass to sustain themselves? Answers to Chris at the naked scientists.com. Write on the forum at the naked com forward slash forum. You can Facebook us or Twitter at naked scientists.
2: Thanks, Diana. That brings a whole new and rather unpleasant meaning to the phrase cooking with gas. But alternatively, if you know what keeps a black hole together, do please get in touch.
1: Thank you very much. That's it for this week. Thank you to our guests, Victoria Gill, Mark Redwood, Emma Stoy, Jassing and Keith Dunstan. Next week, plant pathology. We'll be finding out what happens when plants get ill and how they can call up an insect army to defend them if they get attacked. If you have any questions, then send them to chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientists. In the meantime, have a great weekend and see you next time.
0: The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the Natural Environment Research Council, and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at thenakedscientists.com.